Hacking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to the Hacking Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Thank you for listening. Today, I have a great guest for you, Leonie Joubert, who is a science writer based in Cape Town, South Africa. Before I tell you a bit more about Leonie's background and segue to our interview, just want to make a brief note about content for those of you who didn't stick around to listen to the end of the last podcast. And that is that I am really going to make an effort to have a diversity of content on the show. That means staying true to the fact that there are really four different lenses that we're looking through consciousness, science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. I'm very aware of the fact that early on there is going to be a lot of content from the yoga slash meditation background um, and as well as psychedelics. And that's in part because I'm really excited about what's happening right now in terms of psychedelic research. And my own background is very much with um, yoga and meditation. But all of that said, I will get to in time uh, exploring um, more of the issues with technology like artificial intelligence and some of the different technological tools we can use to explore consciousness. As the podcast grows, I hope to be able to reach out and get more guests from those communities. It's obviously easier to connect to people from my own network starting out. And it is really, really important to me, though, that whatever issue we're talking about, meditation, yoga, mantra, psychedelics, that we're really doing it through a scientific, rational approach. And that includes sometimes coming up against maybe where are the limitations of knowledge in the Western scientific model but always doing it with an emphasis on reason and just sort of acknowledging what we can know and not know and where the role of intuition might play a role. So just want to sort of make that preface up front for those who might be enjoying the show but wondering there seems to be a bit of similarity of content. I'm very aware of it and will make an effort over time to make it more diverse. Today, though, we do have a writer coming from, or excuse me, I should say we have someone coming from a different background, which I'm really excited about. Leonie Joubert comes from a background of being a freelance science writer based in Cape Town, South Africa, who uses different storytelling approaches to wander through the often unmapped terrain we face as we try to find ways to live together on a tightly packed planet, climate, energy, climate change, hunger, and malnutrition in the world of big food. Mostly her stories give voice to a silenced environment and the social injustices of a society where the divide between rich and poor have never been greater. So before I cut to my interview with um, Leone, which lasted about 40 minutes, I just wanna make a shout out to say, I would love to hear from all of you who are listening. I encourage you to share your comments, your questions, your suggestions for future podcast episodes and topics or ways that I can improve this podcast. And you can make those suggestions on Twitter. That is the social media platform on which I'm most active. And the Twitter handle is at Hacking Conscious with no G. So it's at 
H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S. Also active on the Facebook group as well, which is just Hacking Consciousness, or you can email those comments directly to Hacking Conscious, spelled the same way as the Twitter handle, so just no G, at gmail.com. And finally, would be very grateful if you're enjoying this podcast, if you could please, please support us by either sharing this content on your own social media platforms, reviewing us on whichever podcasting platform you use is a huge help, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or the Google Music Store. If you can take two minutes to leave a review, would be greatly appreciated. It really helps to build the following for the podcast and to grow this community of like-minded people. And if you'd consider supporting us on patreon.com slash hacking consciousness, even a dollar an episode would go a very long way just towards helping to finance this venture and to helping provide the funds where I can hopefully enlist the support of others to develop more engaging content for you all beyond just the podcast and the blog post. So thank you so much for listening. And now for my interview with Leonie Joubert. How's it going? Hi, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning there in Cape Town. Very well. It's the most beautiful spring day in the Cape with a huge mountain behind me and the sea down at my feet. So I couldn't ask for a better day. (laughs) Oh, that sounds gorgeous. I'm jealous. I told you I've been to South Africa before and absolutely love it. Well, I appreciate you making time to come on the podcast. And so let's just start out with you telling our listeners just a bit about your background and why we decided to talk today. Great, well, thank you. And uh, I really appreciate uh, you extending this offer. It's lovely to feel part of this um, small but growing uh, global community of people who are concerned about this really important mental health story. Um, My background, I'm a journalist and a historian, I guess, by training. But um, I moved into the world of science writing about 17 years ago, and I try and use uh, sort of descriptive narrative style, long form storytelling, really um, in visiting places and people and using those stories to talk about complex scientific issues like the impact of climate change on different environments in Southern Africa. I also look at energy policy issues, environmental change more broadly, And I'm also concerned about the issue of um, health and nutrition in the context of this capitalist food system. So, you know, why the food system leaves so many of us um, heavy and sick, and that it's not just individuals making bad choices, but the system that we operate in. So, yeah, I've I've written uh, about five or six books uh, that touch on some of these topics. I do long-form journalism as well. But... um, I'm really interested in how so many South Africans are left behind. By that I mean economically, um, in terms of education, health access. Uh, We have a very brutal history, colonial and apartheid era history, where the entire structure of the legal system and the political system and the economy was geared towards leaving people of colour behind. So if you were born black into South Africa for a period of about 300 years, you were more likely to be born into a system where you would not get good education or health care or good nutrition. And we have a massive divide between rich and poor as a result and huge problems around development and poverty. And so much of the storytelling that I do is trying to address that. 
I think the interesting parallel for this conversation that I'll underscore for listeners is the there are some definitely some parallels between equity issues and racial disparity in terms of South Africa and the United States. And many Americans might not um, always compare themselves to a developing country, but in terms of wealth inequality and racial disparities, our statistics, by which I mean our U.S. statistics, really more closely mirror South Africa than our neighbors, many of our other neighbors in in the developed world. So I think that background is fantastic and highly relevant for this conversation. And yes, please tell us about your Psychonaut project. Okay, so so this was uh, really a, an, an accident um, that happened, uh, as, as, as many things do in life. Um, I heard about a woman, um, uh, so this is a, a white middle-class woman from an ordinary suburb in a little town very near to Cape Town. She's 72 years old. And I'd always known her as this very grandmotherly type. I knew her in the in writing circles. And she had been arrested for hosting what she called mushroom ceremonies. And I thought, what on earth is this? Um, anyway, it turns out that she holds these, these deep psychedelic uh, mushroom ceremonies where people uh, get together in her house and they take five grams of mushrooms and they have these very profound experiences but psilocybin mushrooms, like most psychedelics, are a Schedule 7 drug here in South Africa, which is the equivalent of a Schedule 1 in the United States and according to the UN. So essentially, she was arrested and charged with uh, having the substance, possession and dealing, which is essentially a, a, the same as being charged as being a heroin dealer or a crystal meth dealer. And it comes with a minimum of 15-year jail sentence. The only way she can get around these criminal charges is to get the Constitutional Court in South Africa to rule that psilocybin mushrooms are not dangerous and addictive, that they do have medical and spiritual potential, and that it's the right of South Africans to have access to the substance which has such huge potential for our health and well-being. Anyway, I, I just thought, well, this is interesting. I'll just write a single feature article on it. But then I started exploring this little interesting underground community of people who dabbled with psychedelics. So people who used them recreationally, others who used them for spiritual growth and self-actualization, and others who just used them ceremonially. And then I started looking into all of the scientific research around the therapeutic use of these substances. And this is where I was blown away. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe the kind of peer-reviewed material that was coming out of places like Johns Hopkins Medical School and Imperial College London. And it was, and MAPS, of course, I'm sure your readers are, or listeners are familiar with the MAPS uh, research group. Just staggering. And I thought, okay, if these substances are really so therapeutically beneficial, where psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, they're proving more effective in the treatment of mood disorders and addictions like uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, suicidality, alcohol dependence, If these substances are more effective at treating these issues than the current mainstream therapies are, then surely South Africans need to know about this and need to have access to the substance. So the the podcast, essentially, I was going to write it as a book because that is my, my normal medium. But in South Africa, we have very, very low readership rates. If this gives you an example, we have 52 million people in this country 
But in order to get a bestseller in the non-fiction world, you only have to sell 5,000 copies of a book. I mean, that's how limited your reach is. And I thought this story is too important to let it be held back by the frustrations of the limitations of the book publishing industry. And I thought, why don't I just try and launch into the world of amateur broadcasting? So I started writing up a series of 10 episodes where each was going to be a chapter of a book, but I'm now reading it for the audience rather than expecting them to read it themselves because people are time limited. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's trying to bring together the experience of local South Africans who are experimenting with the substance at the same time as weaving through this really solid science to say, we don't need to be afraid of these substances. They have massive potential for treating um, some of these mood disorders and addictions in a country where we have very, very little access to good, solid mental health care. You know, if you are a wealthy South African, a, a small percentage of this affluent middle class, you will have access to private health care. But if you are not, which is the vast majority of South Africans, your access to public health care is very limited. And when it comes to public mental health care, it's almost non-existent. I appreciate you painting that picture. And I really want to go kind of deeper into, I know some of the ways you see psychedelic therapy as possibly kind of disrupting existing paradigms for healthcare and the way that might address some of the equity issues. Before we touch on that, can you kind of give us a sense of what the political and cultural climate like is like? You've already done this with the legal climate um, regarding psychedelics, but for example, in the U.S., you know, the laws are very harsh, but depending on which state you're in or which city, psychedelics will be um, more or less accepted to other degrees or their use might be more or less widespread to other degrees. It's certainly a much smaller fraction. It's not like marijuana, but if you lived somewhere like an extreme example would be the San Francisco Bay Area, right? Um, telling a story about the psychedelic journey you had over the weekend really wouldn't raise any eyebrows. So can you just talk a little bit about the the cultural, the political landscape there? Yes, so so when you introduced the, the podcast, you mentioned that I'm in Cape Town, which of course is the oldest city in South Africa and is very Europeanized in its uh, sort of cultural context. Cape Town is very much a, a little bubble. Um, and I have to, from time to time, remind myself to just almost temper my enthusiasm when I talk about psychedelics as openly as I do, because outside of this little bubble, there's a very conservative uh, rest of South Africa. You know, as is, I think, the cultural attitudes towards psychedelics in many parts of the world, they are associated in most people's minds with this kind of beatnik 1960s, make love, not war, hippie culture, which for some reason just prickles for a lot of people. So... There is a big sort of hippie kind of community in Cape Town. There is a large, established, confident psychedelic community in Cape Town. And this is the community that I've been able to tap into for all, all of the storytelling, which has been so wonderful. But outside of that largely sort of westernized, largely middle class hippie community, there are very, very conservative values out there. And the idea of talking about psychedelics makes people very nervous. You know, what I'm hoping to do with my podcast, because I have 
established myself as a reputable science writer in South Africa. I have a little bit of a public profile, so I don't look like some weirdo that's coming out and pushing a hippie agenda. I'm trying hard to present this as a solid scientific research project underscored by appropriate ethical and professional parameters. Um, so I'm hoping that that is going to help open the way to a less hysterical conversation around psychedelics. But for most of the country, I would say we're probably 20 years behind you in terms of attitudes towards psychedelics. Um, when I tune into some of the podcasts that are coming out of the States and Europe around psychedelics, I can't believe you're so frank and open about them. Whereas here, I have to be incredibly careful that I keep the conversation framed in the right way and limit it to the right audiences. I was incredibly worried when I first launched the Psychonauts. I had a local radio station with a, quite a big listenership contact me and do an interview about this, and I was extremely worried that it would cause reputational damage for myself as a science writer. But at the same time, it's very evident, watching how the police have handled the case of this woman who was arrested for holding the mushroom ceremonies. She was, incidentally, she was arrested a second time because after she initiated the constitutional court case process, which is a very long, slow process, she went back home and continued with her ceremonies, and she was arrested a second time and charged a second time with possession and dealing. But the fact that the police have handled her in a very, very gentle way, they understand that they're not dealing with a substance that is as dangerous as crystal meth or heroin. So there is the sense that the police don't want to waste resources on chasing down this drug den. <laughs> um, so there, there is a sense that it's, it's not as dangerous as people might think. But, you know, unfortunately, because... Psilocybin, LSD, some of these substances are lumped into the same scheduling category as crystal meth and, and heroin. The public perception is that they are as dangerous, as harmful at a political, physical uh, level. Right. So similar to the U.S. Very much so, yeah. In that respect, yeah. I, I would add, too, just to give some perspective on the U.S., uh, perspective in terms of people speaking so openly. I think this is a relatively new phenomenon. It's kind of this, there's sort of a whole coming out of the closet movement that psychedelic advocates are trying to promote. Um, and it is occurring within a larger backdrop that MAPS is help, helping to push this and Drug Policy Alliance and make it more legitimate because of people are hearing the benefits of MDMA and other substances for PTSD. But yeah, I, I, I think that is relatively new, just to give you a little context on it in terms of people speaking so publicly, which is part of the purpose of this podcast too. Great. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because there's a very uh, a good parallel. Um, in South Africa, we have had and do still have exceptionally high rates of HIV. And um, for a long time, one of the biggest uh, hurdles to responsibly and effectively addressing this pandemic, really, was the stigma associated with being HIV positive. And there was a, a strong and very brave advocacy drive from certain civil society organizations for many years saying, be brave, come out of the closet. If you're HIV positive, let's just say so. You know, so that the more we realize the more South Africans have HIV, the less people will be terrified by it. And, and slowly over time, uh, it did become destigmatized. Drug policy changed. 
attitudes around uh, handling HIV in communities changed. And, and suddenly now people realize, you know, it's, it's not great to be HIV positive, but actually it's just like living with a chronic disease. It's not this huge sort of thing that people are ashamed of. And, and it was really largely because p brave people came out and said, you know, I have this virus in my blood. It sucks, but I'm healthy and happy and I'm still a contributing member of society. I'm not dirty. You can shake my hand. In fact, I was speaking with a professor friend of mine who is uh, quite progressive in his approach to psychedelics. <laughs> and he was saying, we need to do exactly the same thing. The community that uses these substances, we can show that they are responsible individuals. The more we talk about it, the less stigma there will be associated with it. And I do feel almost a moral responsibility to, to do so, actually, even if it puts myself at risk, because... Now that I have started looking at the research that shows how effective these substances are at dealing with the pain of being human, that existential pain of being human, which is amplified so much by poverty, it feels like I have a moral responsibility to get South Africans to talk about this so that we can legalize the substances and then actually get them into our therapy rooms. And it doesn't look like it's going to be difficult to do it. It's going to be so cheap to get the medicine distributed, and we'll talk about the model that I have in mind in a little while. It'll be so cheap to get the drug distributed, and it will be an opportunity to train up people in the healthcare community, which will be a great uh, job creation opportunity. Yeah, let's actually get into that now, if, if you're ready. I would love to kind of talk about that, because when you first proposed this idea to me, or, or talked about how you saw the value of psychedelic therapy kind of really disrupting the healthcare model in South Africa and possibly, I don't want to say solving, but, you know, lessening some of the equity issues involved there. I thought that was really powerful and a great story to tell. So do you mind sharing that? Great. Okay. Yeah. So, so what I'll do is give you a little case study of a community that um, typifies a South African context and then talk about how I think psychedelic therapy could be introduced there. So one of the hallmarks of South African cities, and you know, if you look at the, at the global south, I think this is typical of so many um, developing world countries. We've had 300 years of uh, economic policy that has pushed people away from the sort of rural uh, villages and homes, and it's broken up communities and driven people towards these rapidly industrializing cities. The upshot is we have massive slums on the edge of our big cities. These are informal settlements, what we call informal settlements, uh, where people generally live in little makeshift structures made from sort of corrugated iron and clapboard and that sort of thing. Um, very little service delivery, no running water in their homes, no toilets. Um, you know, generally people have to go to a communal outhouse, which will be two, three hundred meters from their home. We have terrible stories of people being mugged and raped on their way to going to the toilets in the middle of the night. You know, it's just appalling. So recently there was some interesting research done in a community just outside Johannesburg. It's an informal settlement called Diepsluit. That's an Afrikaans word which literally means deep gully. And uh, it's such a good descriptive term because in so many of these informal settlements, you don't have decent running um, uh, sanitation or anything. You just have litter lying everywhere and, you know, these gullies that are just full of 
trash and dirty water. And it's really appalling conditions to be born into. We have incredibly high levels of violent crime and domestic violence in these communities. Very high levels of rape. And uh, a civil society organization went into this community of Dipsluit and they wanted to understand the extent of rape and domestic violence, but they also wanted to understand why it was that it was so severe. Anyway, they, they did a, a survey of, I think, 2,000 and something young men and discovered that over 50% of these young men in the previous year had either raped or assaulted a woman. That's 50%, a little over 50%, and most of those men had done so more than once. And, I mean, it was just a shocking figure. But then the researchers started to drill down a little bit to try and understand why they were so violent. And basically, they paint a, a very powerful picture of the fact that most of these young men had suffered abuse and trauma as boys. Now, what I mean by that is not just the active violence of maybe being beaten by a drunk father or the active violence of being bullied at school, but it's the passive violence of neglect and abandonment and being left wanting. So there's a lot of research to show the link between the stress of poverty, like not knowing where your next food is going to come from, like going to bed hungry every night. You know, just quickly, one of the areas I write about a lot is, is food insecurity. And I hear stories about mothers who will put a pot of boiling water onto the stove and boil the water so that her child thinks that she's cooking. And she will put her child to bed and say, you just go and rest for a little while while I make dinner. It'll, I'll come and wake you when dinner's ready. And then she will allow her child to go to sleep. She has no food to cook, but at least she's given the child the idea, the promise that maybe there's food coming and she can then put the child to sleep. But she'll have nothing to feed the kid. Now, there's a link between that kind of constant uh, trauma and stress and mood disorders and the self-medicating behavior that drives, for instance, alcohol abuse later in life. These young men who are who lack impulse control when they're older, they have been exposed to incredible levels of trauma and perpetual stress. And so the men that they interviewed and found had been involved in so much uh, domestic violence. These were men who were depressed. They had um, very little job prospects. They felt impotent at an existential level. And how do people deal with depression and anxiety and essentially what is a being in a state of constant post-traumatic stress? They self-medicate, they lash out at others. Then I started looking at some of the models for using psychedelics to treat these kinds of conditions. And there are two models that I find fascinating. The first is, uh, I forget the name of the veterans organization who you have mentioned previously. Is this... Veterans for Entheogenic Therapy, VET. That's the one, yes. Yeah. Where they're taking uh, U.S. war veterans either down to Costa Rica or else to... There's a, a Native American church in, in the U.S., I believe, that is licensed to use ayahuasca. I know that a lot of vets are going to Peru and Costa Rica. but So essentially they're taking these deeply broken, traumatized men on a, on a retreat where they have several days of exposure to ayahuasca therapy. And then, of course, they come back. And what's lovely about the support structure they have 
is a year after the ceremonial sort of retreat where the individuals are given the opportunity to work with different sorts of therapeutic organizations to help integrate the healing as well as integrate back into society. So they'll have equine therapy or canine therapy, all sorts of different therapeutic processes. So that's the one model. The other model, of course, is the one uh, is that being used by sort of the MAPS researchers and these guys at Johns Hopkins and the University of New Mexico, I think, and Imperial College London, where they take people in with, uh, and these are people who either have treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant PTSD, suicidality, struggling with alcohol dependence, and in these different research programs, they put people through a very simple uh, 12-week program where each week is a different therapy session, like an ordinary sort of talk therapy session, which prepares the person for a psychedelic experience and then helps them integrate afterwards. And then it's just two sessions. May I think they have the option of doing three sessions sometimes, but literally just two or three sessions where they're exposed to the substance. They take the drug, they, they go on this deep psychedelic trip where they're supported by two therapists in the room uh, you know, they wear eye masks and listen to music. You've probably heard all of this already. But it's the work that the individual does on his or her own story within that one or two or three dosing sessions that results in these incredible changes in mood and behavior that last for months after the substance has left the body. So this is where I'm curious to how we could introduce this into South Africa. If we were to legalize these substances, it would be so easy to take people from the public health care sector, nurses, counsellors, and train them up in the protocols that you see listed in the harm reduction sort of guidelines around how to hold this very unique experience. And then you could, for instance, at a, a state health care clinic in a community like Deep Slurt, you and, and this is where, you know, primary health care is a, is a big deal uh, in South Africa. So, for instance, the state will put a lot of money into putting a small clinic into a community like Deep Slurt so that mothers can go for contraceptive support, they can get um, sort of uh, postnatal support once they've had babies, etc. So you already have that infrastructure in place. Now, imagine you had a whole bunch of nurses and counsellors who were trained up. Young men who were at risk and really struggling can go to a clinic like this. They can probably sit and do sort of group counseling in preparation for the psychedelic experience. And then they have two or three psychedelic experiences, either with MDMA or LSD or psilocybin. And then they are supported afterwards. And then you have a whole bunch of civil society organizations that help create sort of integration programs. Now, in an informal settlement like Deep Slurts, I don't think equine therapy or canine therapy is culturally or sort of um, locally uh, appropriate. But what if you had a whole bunch of soccer clubs or a whole bunch of workshops where young men can go and learn carpentry skills? And while they're doing their carpentry, they're talking through some of the stuff that they've had to face um, in these psychedelic experiences. It would be relatively easy to train up the, the staff to hold that process. And the drug itself would cost less than $50 for two sessions, maybe $75 in total for three sessions. That's it. Now, if you think about how most of the drugs that are used to treat depression or anxiety or, uh, or even alcoholism, most of those drugs you have to take every single day to keep them in your system and keep them effective. Whereas 
obviously, as you know, with these psychedelics, you take them sort of two or three times, you have this deep psychedelic experience. And then even once the substance has left your body, the, the behavior and mood changes last for months, sometimes even years. So it means that you just need a couple of uh, sessions where you're exposed to that substance and you can have really significant change. The trick is to make sure that in a, in a cultural context where people have not experienced psychedelics before, you have trained up the right people so that you have the right containers to get the whole set and setting thing right. No question. That's crucial. Yeah. Let, let's, let me ask you one thing. So I used to work in politics and so, and I'm also a history student and teacher. And so as soon as you talk about this, I'm thinking this sounds on a personal level, I'm thinking this sounds great, you know, makes tons of sense, adds value, makes it more accessible, lowers costs. Politically, I'm thinking, hmm, who's losing from this? Right. <laughs> Big pharma. Pharma. Right. And and the, so this has a very practical question, which is what are the, tactically, politically the obstacles to this and how do we overcome those? Um, yeah, you, you said one of them, pharma. I mean, as an American, the pharmaceutical lobby is so powerful. To Can you kind of flesh out the extent of the obstacle they are posed by the pharmaceutical industry, by other aspects of the existing healthcare system, or, or anything else? That's a very good question, and one that, that I don't know I'm well enough equipped to answer now, but I certainly have an eye on it. A, a good example would be we have parallels in terms of the sugar sector, um, the tobacco sector. Uh, I don't want to get waylaid too much, but we have a huge drive to try and limit uh, sugar distribution or sugar uh, use in South Africa. Um, similar to a country like Mexico, we have very, very high levels of obesity linked with uh, sugar consumption. And so we, we have a strong lobby here trying to drive a, a tax on sugar to reduce the amount of sugar, particularly that poorer people consume. Because the cost to the individual in terms of lost income from illnesses like diabetes, massive. But there is a very, very strong pushback from the sugar industry, who is incredibly powerful, which I think is the case in, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry in the States, similarly. So we, one can anticipate that the pharmaceutical industry, if they aren't able to corral and control uh, these substances, there might be similar pushback. I don't know to what extent big pharma has that level of influence over policy in South Africa. I know that the sugar industry has a lot of lobbying power, so we might see something similar happen here. But because many of the companies that we're talking about are multinationals, they're going to be responding to what happens in the international market. So what happens in the US and Europe is going to ripple out to South Africa, both in terms of the medical community shifting its position, as well as laws possibly following, as well as the pharmaceutical companies responding. I think what is far more of a concern than big business in this context is political attitudes. Um, I think we're politically very conservative, both from the perspective of the voting public, as well as the perspective of policymakers and politicians. So unless we, and, and also incidentally in the therapeutic community, there are very, very few people 
who are practicing psychiatrists and psychologists who are open to talk about this. Even in the psychedelic community where I meet quite a few psychiatrists and psychologists, they keep it very close to their chest. You know, they, they know that their patients want to try the substances, they will support them in counseling, but they can't openly say that they recommend this therapeutic approach because essentially if one of their patients wants to try uh, therapeutic psilocybin, they have to go into this underground community, basically take a substance that is illegal, and they have to do it in the context where this kind of ceremonial sort of shamanistic guide is going to sit with them. But it's not, that guide is not someone who has um, therapeutic training. So, that, you know, you can understand why there's risk. So I think the kind of therapeutic community has a strong lobbying opportunity and I would say even a strong responsibility to talk about the emerging science from abroad and to say we, the, the substances are coming. Rather than saying if they come, let's say they are coming, how can we start getting therapists trained up now in order to, to hold and contain this appropriately? I've heard a couple of people on various US podcasts talking about how MDMA, possibly psilocybin and LSD will be licensed for medical use within just five years. I mean, that's not far away. Um, there's a lot of work that could be done uh, in anticipation of that. Yeah, I know um, MDMA just got approved for the stage three clinical trial, which is like the big kind of final phase. So I know that's huge. I'm not sure what the implications are, but I, I you know, the, the story that the FDA classified MDMA as a breakthrough medical technology, uh, I don't know what that means in terms of the policy potential, but everyone, you know, the, all the chatter around that suggested it was a very important, very significant statement. It wasn't just a, um, a little off-the-cuff statement by the FDA, but it had policy implications. Is that right? You know, I, I'm not going to pretend to understand the policy implications that would come with that. I know there are tons from upgrading it to phase three, um, but I don't know all the other ones. I should have someone, and I hope to have someone on from MAPS who can address that. But these are these are interesting questions, and it varies a lot from substance to substance, right? Psilocybin is uh, a great substance for researchers to work with because they can isolate that compound, and you can subject that to a double-blind clinical trial, whereas something like ayahuasca is something that by its very nature sort of falls outside the boundaries of okay. working, of scientific studies, right? Because it's not a controlled substance, it's a brew. So I think how, it's going to be very interesting to see how um, progress happens on these fronts because you're coming up against cultural differences in terms of Western paradigms around what's, what or what not is an appropriate way to sort of investigate knowledge and deem what is knowledge or reliable and things like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, one thing that I have tried to do with this, this podcast is based on good old-fashioned storytelling. You know, a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to that um, deal with this renaissance of psychedelic psychiatry, they're just kind of trying to list the facts and figures which is fascinating and interesting. What I've tried to do with my podcast is put a slightly different spin on it um, for two reasons. And, and the spin is that I'm trying to tell individual people's stories to show their own history, how they came to need 
this kind of therapy and then how the therapy has worked for them in order to allow some kind of healing. And the reason I've done it this way is, is twofold. Firstly, from the perspective of a science writer, I know from experience you can beat people over the head with facts. You can sound as rational and evidence-based as you like, but people don't necessarily respond to dry facts. People respond to a story when they can connect with it and they have an empathetic response to a story. And the best way to do that from a science communication perspective is to put a human face on it. As soon as someone, a listener or a reader, can identify themselves in a story, they're able to connect with the information you're giving them. So that's why I think, you know, for the past 17 years, most of my science-based storytelling has been about talking about real people and real places. Um, so that's the one thing. But the other thing is, you know, as I've said before, the power of psychedelic therapy is not that the substance stays in your body constantly the way an ordinary, say, antidepressant would. But it's the way that you're able to relook at your life and reframe your story that allows the substance to be so, um, so powerful. So, you know, you can sit in therapy for six, seven, eight years and talk through your story. And it's really important doing that in order to make sense of who you are and why you became the way you are. And it's that storytelling process that you engage with when you're on the psychedelic trip that allows you to reframe your story in a way that allows you to live with yourself. And so that's what I've tried to do in, in each episode is to capture someone's story to just show how that psychedelic uh, substance has worked for them. Um, you know, so many people come away from these deep uh, psychedelic trips saying that it felt like, you know, five years of therapy in one night. That's really powerful stuff. Yeah, so the, the, the podcast is very scripted. It's very much taking a written story and reading it for the reader. But that is because it's my sort of traditional way of, of storytelling. It's how I've been doing it for sort of 17 years. But uh, it, so it's not like the, the sort of Q&A approach that you and I are engaged with now. Right. Yeah, I think you raise a great point about the power of telling stories. I mean, that is very true. I think any politician will tell you that, right? Ultimately, people are largely swayed by emotion, right? And stories, not just reason. Unfortunately, public policy is not really decided by reason or science or facts a lot. But um, it's a great reminder to those of us who, who think there are value in these substances to really emphasize that piece of it. I had a guest, uh, let's see, it was a couple shows ago, Ian Benoit, who was an activist for veterans, and he does all these work. It was He shared his personal story, but it was also um, the power that he's seen what plant medicines do for veterans heal. And I think that could be a real game changer in terms of helping to change attitudes in the U.S. is when people start to see what veterans are getting out of this because many of the politicians who are particularly diehard about the drug war in the U.S. are the same ones who love to wrap themselves in the flag and talk how much they love supporting the troops. So I think if some of these veterans start talking about the value that they're getting from these medicines, it's going to put some of these politicians in a pretty uncomfortable position. And um, it's not just veterans, right? It's it's It can be any sort of trauma. I saw that personally when I went to Peru and saw people who had all sorts of childhood trauma that it helped them heal from. So I appreciate what you're doing to help get these stories out there. Thank you, Yeah, And the, you actually raise a very important point. Um, I 
picked up in one of the podcasts where they were interviewing these guys from the, the Vets for Entheogenic Therapy. Or one of the things they said, which I found fascinating, is that so you have all of these guys going through this traumatizing experience of war. Only a percentage of those come back with this full-on PTSD. And what they were finding is that the, a lot of the men that they were doing this ayahuasca work with, these veterans, they weren't going through the experience dealing with the war trauma. It was actually the childhood trauma that they were wanting to deal with. And this is, I think, one of the sort of theories is that you have all of these young men going into this pressure cooker situation. The ones who are most vulnerable to uh, PTSD are the ones who are not resilient because they had traumatic childhoods. So it just shows you, you know, that an acute exposure to trauma in war is going to damage someone. But the point is, if you are already vulnerable from childhood trauma, anyone who has childhood trauma behind them is going to be more vulnerable to the kind of mental health issues that we are talking about here. Um, so it all comes back to whether that child was resilient or not. And uh, yeah, it shows that, that the work ultimately is about going back to the childhood stuff. Totally. And I know Ian has made that same point. He said that we have, I forget his exact wording, but we have a PTSD problem, which is largely masquerading as a childhood trauma problem, or it's covering it up, something along those lines. It's very true. Well, Leone, thank you so much. I think this might be a great point to, to wrap up. Before we part, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to share with our listeners your personal information, where they can find your work, your podcast, and anything else you'd like to let them know about. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I do feel like I'm uh, this little isolated bubble out in a dark sort of sea of space. So being able to connect with people like yourselves through this sort of strange internet community has been very reassuring. And I feel like there's this little umbilical cord going back to a, a bigger group of people. I don't feel quite so isolated and alone. So thank you for that. You can listen to, so the, the, the podcast is called The Psychonauts. You can find it on iTunes. Um, just look for The Psychonauts. It's also available for streaming directly from the website. Just go to www.psychonauts.co.za and you can listen to the first four episodes. Start with the welcome message because that um, explains it and it frames why I've taken the approach that I have. But yeah, it'd be great if, if people could uh, sort of support and distribute so that, uh, you know, the more supporter podcast like this gets the more uh, mainstream it might appear the less like a, <laughs> a strange endeavor by a, a nutty science writer in the southern tip of africa <laughs> and if people want to reach out to you where are you most active um is it twitter or what social media or email what's better yeah twitter just look for p underscore noughts on twitter that's me or leone jibay one word in Twitter, uh, similarly in Facebook. And my email, if you are interested, uh, Leone, L-E-O-N-I-E, at leonijabeer.co.za. Also, if you just Google Leone Jabeer Science Writer, usually uh, it comes up fairly, fairly easily. So thank you. I really look forward to hearing all of your future episodes. I think you have a fantastic uh, way of framing this issue. So well done. Thank you, Leone, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Really appreciate it, and let's definitely stay in touch.
Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hackingconsciousness. Thank you so much to those of you who are still listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Leone. I thought that she was an extremely well-spoken and informed person who had an interesting perspective to share on what's happening in South Africa. One thing that I love about this podcast, I mean, many things, but um, the chance to connect with people from all around the world. As someone who loves to travel myself, I love hearing not only the chance to build relationships with people from different places, but hearing their different perspectives. And in this case, how psychedelics is resonating in their particular community and how it's unfolding in terms of the cultural and the political conversations um, and kind of noting the similarities and the differences. And one thing that I really enjoyed about it is also, even though we learned, you know, how this could really be applied in psychedelic research might have something particularly unique to add to South Africa. There's clearly also a lot of parallels as well to what's going on in other countries where psychedelic research is happening. I'm particularly thinking of my native country, the United States, in terms of the high cost of healthcare. And so if psychedelics are possibly something that could help to lower those costs, whether it's because of you don't have to be on prescription drugs for as long, right? If someone's able to go to several ayahuasca ceremonies or be on, have a relatively short treatment of psilocybin, or they're able to microdose even occasionally small amounts of psilocybin or LSD or anything that helps with their uh, depression, for example, that could be something that really helps to lower the high cost of healthcare and pharmaceutical drugs. And though I'm sure that the pharmaceutical industry and others in the status quo who profit from that will not be thrilled, I think that it holds great potential for consumers and for our country as a whole. So hope you enjoyed that. I feel like I should be releasing some sort of short written piece kind of sharing these ideas, which hopefully I'll get to this week. And I'll be releasing a bonus episode later in the week in which there's a role reversal and I am being interviewed on Leone's podcast. So stay tuned for that. That should come out in a few days. Thank you so much and talk to you soon. Hacking Consciousness, exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics.